Good morning. Let's take a seat. We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. These are the words of God. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. These are the word of God. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Going into this message today, I've been blessed to be able to teach through another genealogy. This is the last genealogy mentioned in Genesis. Uh, This is the final descendants of Shem who we see here. Up until this point in time, the things we have found in Genesis are creation. The amazing, miraculous act of God by speaking and creating everything that is seen, both the seen and the unseen. We saw in the creative act of God when he spoke or gave breath to man, gave him a job to do, to steward the earth, and gave him a wife, Eve, which led the fall. Just a reminder with the fall when they ate of the fruit that when you read those texts, Adam was standing right next to Eve when she ate of the fruit. He wasn't somewhere off in the distance where she had to go search him out with the fruit in her hand and give it to him. He was there observing. And the fall happened and the promise came. If you look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelion, the pre-gospel, the before-gospel, before the gospel comes, and it says, I, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The forerunner, the idea of the coming Messiah, the promise. 
And then we see a world that becomes more and more chaotic. A world that becomes more and more violent. A world where God can no longer stand what the people are doing. And in His sovereignty, He decides to save eight out of all of them. And a worldwide flood occurs. There are literally corpses floating in the water. But for the eight that are in a rudderless and sailless ship. A boat that has no means of steering, no means of propulsion. It is merely a salvific view. God has chosen to save these eight and animals. He bears them through the flood over more than a year's period of time. And he says, go, be fruitful, and multiply. And much like Cain, what we find happening is that instead of scattering, we see that we gather, that people gather in a city like Cain did. The city of Babel, or Babel, depending on how you like to pronounce it. And God again enacts judgment on these people. He scatters them about the face of the earth. We see that all the nations come from here and all the languages come from here. God's judgment again. He had told them to go about the earth, be fruitful and multiply. So this narrative today or rather, this genealogy today, which we admit that at times genealogies can be somewhat difficult. They can be somewhat boring to our senses. It can be like opening up the Bible, the old family Bible, and looking down through and seeing some of your ancestors. You are interested for a minute or two, but then quickly you lose interest and you want to move on to something more exciting. John Weathersby last week, uh, and previously with genealogies, he has given us this good advice. When you're reading through that, focus in on one of the people in the genealogy and trace that out and see where it leads you. Maybe nowhere. More than likely, it will lead you somewhere in the Scripture. But one thing we certainly see in the, in the genealogy is God's sovereignty at play. God's plans at play. God's plans that will not be thwarted being worked out without regard to what we think. Now you'll note that the title of this message is Shadows of the Promise. And as I was driving into the church today, I was thinking about this and it's kind of like when we we know, for example, when we look up at the sky, when we see all the stars, we can see the stars, we're like, wow, that's amazing. But the next night, it's cloudy. Do we think the stars have disappeared? Are they not there? But we know they're there behind all those clouds. 
We know that somewhere, if we could just get beyond those clouds, we could see those stars shining. And so it is with God's promises. Sometimes these promises are clouded. Sometimes we only see shadows of that promise. Yet they are clearly there. God's plans will not be thwarted. They will not be, His plans will not veer off in odd directions. He will not go on a rabbit trail. Everything that happens with His salvific, redemptive plan will always be exactly as He has deemed it to be. As an aside, we were in Sunday school class today speaking about the difficult doctrine of limited atonement or you can call it also particular redemption. And the reminder is this, that the moment you came to salvific faith, the moment that you knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, that He has risen, that He has taken on the payment for your sins, that He has fulfilled the prophecies, the moment that you know Jesus, the day in your life that that happened, the minute that that happened, was exactly the right minute for it to happen. You might say to yourself, I wish I would have became a believer 10 years ago, and it would have saved me a bunch of heartache. But God in His plan, in His promise, said that this is the right exact moment for this to happen so that I will be glorified in that salvation. We will see similar things in this particular genealogy. Trust me, it is not boring if we look and see what's happening there. So we will see in this narrative, we will see three or perhaps a couple more aspects of that shadow of the promise that God gave in Genesis 3.15. It says in verse, and I'm just going to pick up in verse 25 and 26 just to come in. John had preached through those last week. And it says in 25, Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah. And he had other sons and daughters. And that's a good reminder when we look at genealogies in the Scripture that the genealogies are very specific. They're recorded in a very specific way. They don't necessarily record every single person in that family line, they are recording people for a specific reason. And it all points to God's redemptive plan. Verse 26, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Verse 27, where we pick up. We could say that this is a rocky start to a journey, what we have here. It says, now these are the records of the generation of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran became the father of Lot. We know that from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, and I apologize if that's not on the screen, uh, sometimes when I give to uh, our facilitators the Scripture, uh, after I've given it to them, I sometimes come up with other ones. too. It just happens. 
But Joshua chapter 24, verse, 20, verse 2, tells us this, that at this time, that these people, Joshua said to his people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. Now Abraham is Abram. Right now he will have a name change. And the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. We will find out in the next verse that they are in the land of Ur, in the land of Ur, they serve moon gods. So they're pagans. They're non-god followers. Or at best, without being too pejorative, they're perhaps like priesters. Only when convenient do they say anything about the Lord. But one thing we know for certain is that they are worshiping other gods, which will be a violation that we find out in Exodus. This is what they're doing. And it says here, Haran became the father of Lot. This person is strange that he's mentioned right here, but we know some things about Lot that I'm going to bring from forward just so we can see why this genealogy is important and why I would say we have a rocky start to the promise coming true. Lot in verse Genesis chapter 19, verse 37, we will find that he has incestuous relations with his daughters. Now, I do find this interesting that this was not part of the, not my initial part of this sermon, yet somehow earlier this week, I chuckled to myself anymore that we, I actually talked about this with some other men during Bible study, and here it shows up right in this message. Genesis chapter 19, verse 37 tells us this, The firstborn, Lot's firstborn, bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Verse 38, As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So this Lot that is mentioned back here, this Lot who gives a prominent place right in the beginning of the genealogy. Uh, remember, the people that are named are named for a reason. And it says, Haran became the father of Lot. This Lot who had incestuous relations with his daughters. Interestingly enough, Moab means in the Hebrew of, my, of his father. Translated further to my father is also your father. And Ben-Ami means the son of my ancestor, which also translates to my father is yours. So we have in the biblical record that this occurs and that these people are now known for their incest. They have, their names have been memorialized 
to do this. That this lot who is mentioned right in the beginning of this genealogy, remember we're all looking for this redemptive plan. We're looking for that star that's up there. We know it's somewhere out there shining, but the clouds are, we just can't see through the clouds. And this is a cloud. We can't help but see a cloud here. We can't even see the shadow of the redemptive story here with Lot, knowing what we know about Lot. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. Of Lot's line, remember, we're looking. We are looking for that redemptive story. We're looking for that redemptive thread. We are desperately trying to grab onto this rope to see where is God going when we can't quite see it. And Lot is a problem. Because it says that Moab and Ben-Ami, the Moabites and the Ammonites, are who he fathers. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Well, that's a real big problem for the redemptive plan, isn't it? They shall not enter. Now, just a little, just a little, we're going to veer off, we're going to take off this little road, this rocky start. We're going to pull over to the side. We're going to re-examine ourselves for one minute before we get, before we get, we, we don't want to get in the weeds. We don't want to take a wrong exit, right? We're just going to pull over on this idea. Uh, because we want to just think about, and we're not going to turn there, we just want to think about the book of Ruth. Just for a moment, just a tiny thing, just to kind of vector us in. Uh, we also want to say this, that no Moabite or Ammonite will enter the assembly of the Lord. Yet there is sometimes entering of the assembly of the Lord when they believe in the Lord. And we see that in Ruth, because Ruth is from Moab. Ruth is a Moabite. And Ruth, and like, listen, the clouds, there's a little bit, clouds are a little bit, they're not quite as thick now, because when I say Ruth, and she comes from Moab, we're kind of seeing it flickering through because we know Ruth is key to Jesus. And so, so we see we have a little, little light. We've got a little light on this thing. But man, it's, it, the clouds are thick. It's hard to see that redemptive thread. It's hard. It's hard to even see the, the shadows of the redemptive plan when we talk about Lot. It, th this line of Lot will certainly be in contrast to the line of Abram. And understand that Abram isn't perfect either, but he's going to be a big subject for next week. But we do know this, the Moabites, the Ammonites are one of those that were certainly uh, the bane were a problem to the existence of Israel. They would consistently have problems with them and their pagan ways. They would consistently ignore the command of God and they would marry people from these tribes, these pagan tribes, and they would run into all sorts of problems. Moab itself would lead 
Israel into the worship of Baal. Baal is the is uh, is uh, the storm god of the Moabites. Astarte uh, it would be the name. It was a fertility god. Him in the prostitutes uh, that he had. They would sacrifice children for the fertility of their fields and their crops. Israel would marry into those families. If you look at Numbers, and you would, we'll go to Numbers chapter 23 first, then we'll go to 25. Uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites would also hire Balaam. You remember Balaam and Balaam's donkey or Balaam's ass uh, for, to curse Israel too. Right? You find that in Numbers chapter 23. And then in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, you find these words. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They were attracted to the daughters of Moab. They desired the daughters of Moab against the Lord's command. Many a man has been led astray by a pretty face. We see the warnings from old times when they would talk about mermaids calling men to wreck their ships. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, this happened way back then too. Right? They ignored what God said and they chose their own desires. It's kind of like saying, I know God says I shouldn't do this thing, but surely if I choose to do this thing, God will bless it. No, it's not the way it works. If you're going to be disobedient to God, expect God to enact judgment upon that disobedience. And it says in verse 2 of verse 25, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. So in other words, they're sacrificing children. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry against them. I'll continue in verse 4 just to add an exclamation point. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn them may, the fierce anger of the Lord may turn them away from Israel. This is what happens with weak leadership. Weak leadership leads to worship of false gods. Weak leadership leads to the worship of gods that aren't the God of Scripture. Weak leadership allows the people, remember this is the now, you know, our, our star is a little clouded here because of Lot in that line. This weak leadership that comes in, the weak leadership that does not acknowledge the Lord God, uh, the weak leadership that thinks that we can do whatever we want because we desire to do this, 
These are like the wolves that will come into the flock that are told we are told about in Acts that will seek to rend and destroy the flock. This is the same idea. And the punishment obviously comes. So this line of Lot that finds itself in preeminence in this genealogy, there's got to be a reason why. And sometimes what it is is we see the black backdrop, we need the black backdrop to see that diamond like a star shining, like the stars shine in the night sky. We need to see that there. We would also say that we see these things when we read the Scripture like this, that we are faced with a God who is not us. With a, with a God who does not a God of checkboxes, but is a God of His own free will for His own glory. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tell us this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, this is the Lord God speaking, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when we look at these genealogies, and we see Lot mentioned there in the preeminent place, we should say to ourselves, well, that is odd. And we should also say to ourselves, I wonder what God is going to do. Because he promised. How is he going to do it? It says in verse 28, it says, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. That land of moon worshippers. He is now dead. It is a pagan country. Certainly what would be referred to when Israel is founded as Gentiles. This land of the Chaldeans. Haran is probably the oldest son. We would note that many times the person that is used to bring about the redemptive line is not the one that is expected. The oldest son is always expected. The oldest son is rarely used in the Scripture. This is the land where the Scripture tells us that Abram will be moved from Ur, Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. This pagan land with pagan worshipers, with God followers who are not really God followers, who are probably worshiping all these pagan gods, yet somehow that shadow of the hope of the redemptive line is still there. And now, we're going to see a glimmer of hope. We had a rocky start, and now we're going to see a little shining, a little flickering. Uh, the clouds are going to part a little bit more. Uh, we're going to see something more in the Scripture about this, in this narrative, in this genealogy. 
Because it says in verse 29, we remember that people are mentioned for a specific reason in the genealogies because it's going to all somehow point to that redemptive plan of God of Genesis 3.15. Verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, was Iscah. So we have Abram named first with a wife. But then, interestingly enough, we have Nahor's wife, Milcah, mentioned twice in the same verse. There's got to be something about Milcah. Who is this Milcah? Now, I'm not going to let that sit too long, but just note we have two key women with regard to redemption in this particular verse, verse 29. Milcah and Sarai. But why Milcah? Milcah is the grandmother of who? Rebekah. Milcah is the grandmother of Rebekah. Who will Rebekah marry? Isaac. There is our connection. Right? Remember, these Israelites are receiving this book. God's Spirit working in Moses. He's writing this out. They are receiving this book as they are going to enter into the promised land. They're getting their backstory into the promised land. It's like watching, you know, they're literally living these events of God's great, magnificent, plan of taking them out of Egypt and it's like this book comes is when you're watching a series and all of a sudden we're getting the backstory. We're expecting the next chapter but now we've got the backstory that's coming in. Here I want to tell you this just so you know where you're headed to and why. And he says here that you guys all know the story of Isaac Rebecca. Well Isaac's or excuse me, Rebecca's grandmother was Milcah. And she's right here in the 11th chapter of Genesis. She is right here in a prominent place right after Lot. And we all know what comes from Lot. Big problems for us. But here's Milcah. The clouds are parting a little bit. We see that glimmering star of hope, right? We're, we're, we're seeing that light come in. Milcah, I remember Milcah, Milcah, Rebecca, Isaac. Boy, there's something that's going on here. What is God doing? I'm going to grab onto this thread and I'm going to chase this down. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this and see what is happening. Sounds pretty good. The father of Milcah was Iscah. But then verse 30 throws us for a loop. Sarah was barren. She had no child. This standalone sentence it's just thrown out there, just, just thrown on the table. We mentioned these two people. We mentioned these two women, and now Sarai was barren. She had no child. How does this possibly play into God's redemptive plan? This makes no sense. This is not the way I would write a story. God's ways are not our ways. God is painting a beautiful picture. 
he is weaving a tapestry that, with this thread that goes through it. With no errant turns, with, with, with no errant, errant uh, U-turns, uh, with no stops along the way, all with, a particular, uh, all with a particular plan that leads from one end of the Scripture to the ascended Christ sitting on the throne interceding for all believers. And it's right here. The statement of fact. She was barren and had no child. So now think for a moment. God has frequently said up until this point, go forth in the world, be fruitful and multiply. He said it multiple times. After the curse, after the flood, neither of the times did the people really do that. And that stands in contrast I hope you see it. That the, the go forth go, go forth, be fruitful and multiply stands in big contrast to Sarai was barren and had no child. Literally not on the same page, yet here it is right in my scripture. What do I do with this? The thought would be Abram and her married is that there is no blessing to them. There will be no known heirs for them. Just thrown out there as she was barren. She, and in case you didn't know what barren meant, she had no child. Uh, it's almost emphatic to make certain that you don't miss this part. I want to make sure that you know that Moses, as Moses is writing it down, this history now, as the Holy Spirit is guiding him in the writing, his, this is coming out, he's writing this down, and he's saying she had no child. We wouldn't say it's viewed as part of a curse, but it's the result of the curse of sin in the world. It's certainly in contrast to the line of Lot who had children who will be incestuous, who will have, who will be the father of nations that cause problems for Israel. This line of Abram and Sarai seems to be uh, a dead end. We've Almost like you're coming down the highway and you're just pulled off in one of those runaway truck things. Just stops. What, why even mention it? Now we know what the story is, but as they come into this here, they would have known how the stories of old, they would have known about the flood, how God had chosen to save their ancestors, how they were called to fill the earth. And then they were unable to do so here through this barren woman. So maybe the only hope then is through Milka. Then we come into verse 31. The shadows, the clouds hopefully are parting a little bit. We're going to see some light that comes. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, the grandson, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, 
Notice how Sarai is now mentioned for a second time. She wasn't left behind. She is right there with him. Also took his son, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur. Remember the moon worshippers in Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. So their trip is now north and west about 500 miles. North and west about 500 miles. God is pulling them out of one pagan land and He's moving them. We don't see the full picture yet. We don't see the drawing that God is doing yet. The fullness of it. We don't see the end point of it, but we trust in what God is doing because He promised that He would do this. He promised that He would do this thing and He would fix the problem Himself. Spoiler alert. And He's going to use a childless couple to do it. This verb of action where he took them, that Terah took them, he was decisive about doing this. We don't know the reasons right from this text, but Acts chapter 7, verse 2 through 4 tells us a little bit. This is Stephen's sermon right before he's stoned. Acts chapter 7, verse 2 and 4. Stephen speaking, and he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's where Ur is located at. Before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he, led, then he left the land of the Chaldeans, and settled in Haran from there after his father died. God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. Man, we see this thread moving. We see this. We have... Don't lose this, people. Don't lose this idea. We have a glorious thing to have the Scripture ahead of us. The Israelites didn't have it all. We have the full story. We can see the full journey. We can see we we see we see turns and, and dips and valleys and stuff when we look individually at the scripture, but when we see the scripture as a whole, it is one straight line from beginning to end, and it points to Christ. It is fascinating when we see this and consider. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out. Don't miss this, not knowing where he was going. Can't help but think about how the Israelite men pursued the Moabite women. Because they saw what they wanted and they thought it was best. We don't necessarily understand what is best. We, we don't 
We don't fully trust in what God has going for us, but we're going to go after the thing we see rather than trust what God has said. Abram wasn't like that. He did not know where he was going, but he listens. And it says in verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Do not miss that alien reference. You, as a Christ follower in this room, are aliens. 1 Peter chapter 1. It will not be on the board. 1 Peter chapter 1. The way that the Apostle Peter addresses the believers in this chapter, or this book, says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. As Christ followers, you are that stranger in a strange land. You live with your relatives and your friends that are non-Christ followers, and to you, you are alien to them. You do things differently. You handle things differently. You You work differently. You are not like them. We see the shadows of that in the story of Abram. If we continue in Acts chapter 7, and we pick up in verse 3 and 4, when God says, and leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you, in verse 4, then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran from there after his father died. God have him move to this country into which you are now living. Stephen pulling tight that thread so that he can see from the beginning to the end this Christ who he is preaching. That this shadow of hope is becoming a bright star that is not just a, a, a just darkness that we can see, but you can see the brightness that is Christ Jesus. Genesis verse 11 or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 32, ends with the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. His journey had ended there. But God's mission was certainly not over. So we see in this genealogy, we remember that there was the command to go and fill the earth that seemingly seems to be thwarted at every turn by the desires of men to be disobedient to God. First, the people gathered in cities against God's will, and their sin increased, and continued to increase. And God chose to punish them and save the one who was not the rest giver, Noah, and his family. Then the call came again to fill the earth, and again they build a city in opposition to what God has called them to do, and God's wrath burned and He scattered them across the face of the earth. The command to be fruitful and multiply stands with regard, even in regard to this narrative. It hasn't been changed, and the one who seemingly will obey, which is Lot, has relatives that are born of incest. 
Yet the command still stands. Where is the hope that we are looking for? It will land on a childless couple to go and fill the earth. It will land in a barren womb to go and be the father of nations. It will land on a seemingly impossible situation. And I could just picture Stephen picking up that thread and pulling it tight. Don't you see where it started and how it comes right to Jesus Christ? God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the disreputable to shame the reputable. He uses the things that are not to shame the things that are. And He will use a childless couple to bless the nations. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the barren couple, we could say, to do the impossible by man's eyes. Verse 28, and has chosen the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. This is what the triune God that we worship does, a God of the impossible. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God uses the unlikely to enact his salvation. And as Stephen and I were sharing Stephen Howard and I were sharing scripture, sharing some quotes this week. I could not help but use this one from Thomas Brooks. It just seems to fit. And Thomas Brooks says this, It is very observable that the eagle and the lion, those brave creatures, were not offered in sacrifice unto God, but the poor lamb and dove. To denote that God regards not high and lofty spirits, but meek, poor, contemptible spirits God will accept. We should look to this story and see the sovereignty of God. We should look to this story, this narrative, this genealogy, and understand the sure hope that we have in God's promises. We should look to the story and find strength in our calling as Christ followers. We should look to this story and see it as the story of our family. We should look to this story with wonder and amazement, not seeing a shadow or glimmer of hope, but a bright hope shining. And the amazement for the mercy and grace that God shows to the unworthy, we only need to look at Abram and Sarai. We only look to need to look to ourselves as unworthy. We should go and fill the earth with fellow believers, telling them about our Lord and Savior. 
The calling to fill the earth is filling them with Christ's followers. To make disciples, to call them from the highways and the byways. Luke chapter 14, verse 23 tells us, And the Master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. That is our charge as Christ followers today. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, I am begging you to come. Come to Jesus. Cast your burden at the cross. Cling to that cross and know that He is a complete Savior. A a full Savior. A Savior that requires no work of your own. That He saves completely and fully and for eternity. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these narratives, these genealogies. We thank You for the ability to understand what You're saying. We ask for Your ability to trust and believe like the man said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. We humbly become before You. We ask that You shore up our weakness, but You shore it up in humility. We are thankful for your grace and we ask that we are able to give grace away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.